Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And I'm Tim Grady, and I'm here with my host, co-host Lou Weiss, and we are going to be talking about, once again, uh, the tariffs, which don't seem to be going away anytime soon. Everyone is hopeful, and I'm hopeful that the presence of tariffs is not the new normal going forward forever, Lou. I sure hope not. But uh, depending on how this plays out, we have a guest on today, Lydia DiLiello, who is the CEO and founder of Capital Pricing Consultants, who is going to share with our listeners how you can deal with the tariffs that exist today, and if they exist tomorrow, some strategies for your company. So, Lydia, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Tim. We're glad to have you on. Lou and I have talked about this subject for, uh, well, probably since it first came up. Uh, We had some fun researching it all the way back to the days of George Washington, who first talked about tariffs and protecting an industry, in that case, particularly manufacturing. And the five previous presidents who who have implemented tariffs, all of which failed, and hurt the country that implemented, not the country it was supposed to hurt. (laughs) So everybody's kind of going, ouch, Lydia, what should they be doing? Well, relative to pricing, I think the most important thing that they ought to be doing is not waiting around to see what's going to happen next. The clients that I work with, categorically, they are all impacted negatively because we all hope that this was a short run, that this was going to go. And to your point, when you look back historically, this, this has been a theme throughout history. Um, and this current tariff uh, cycle, if you will, started back essentially a year ago with a small amount of tariff and has just continued to escalate to everyone's great indigestion and profit detri- uh, detriment. So the first thing I would say is don't wait. Um, act very quickly rather than react. So what I suggest to my clients is put a plan together of how much price increase they feel they need to either A, stay consistent with their existing margin, or B, if they want to hedge their bets a little, because we know that this isn't the end. As much as I'd like to say this is all going to go away quietly, I really don't believe that. Um, And so in cases where it's possible, my suggestion is hedge the price increases that you are putting in because we know that more tariffs are coming. Um, And I don't think we've seen the highest points of these yet uh, with the continued escalation. So put a plan together, be proactive, and increase those prices now. And then the third thing is communication and transparency with your customer base. If we tell our customers what's going on and we are completely transparent with them, I believe that that is, is much better received. Uh, companies don't lose business when they communicate very clearly with their clientele. You can't walk down the street um, or turn on the Internet without seeing something about tariffs. So 
it isn't that this is, is a nominal issue. Everyone in business is well aware. And um, when I see clients waiting, their profits are getting hit as much as 7% down, seven margin points down, um, because they've waited. So those would be my, my initial suggestions. Uh, Lydia, the, 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 I don't know if the American one public and the American industrial public can handle more tariffs. You know, you said you think that they it still may go up. Well, in uh, for example, in our industry, it's uh, uh, in the metals industry. Our, our all metals and forge group is our primary uh, uh, business. Uh, the tariffs on those types of materials are uh, in the 30, 35 percent range, and that means that we and, and our customers and, and the customers, customers are all going to be paying for the paying this tax. You know, it, to me, it didn't I, make sense in the first place. It, it should have been a uh, quota system, not a not a tariff. Well, what do you think of of that? So I agree with you, Lou, that the, the tariffs are already so high, it doesn't seem conceivable that that the industrial sector could absorb any more. However, I believe that's the sector that, that is second, I suppose, only to agriculture, really being hit the very hardest relative to the financial impact on that right. specific part of the industry. Um, it, and... I, I believe that the impact of this, even if we don't get additional impact, another, in other words, more tariffs coming October 15th, which is what's pending out there now, um, that the impact to companies is still yet to be seen because generally speaking, the impact to profit takes somewhere between six months and a year to settle out totally. For a company to look back and say, what did these tariffs do to us overall? It's a six-month to one-year horizon. So I guess part of, of my my comments, Lou, was around what companies are going to see as this all settles out in the next year's time frame. But, yes, I, I completely agree. The way this has been in, implemented is not at all equitable. Well, not, only, not only that, there's a far-reaching effect that we're not even talking about and maybe we will start to. The fact that Brazil is allowing their forests to burn down so that they can more fully develop an agricultural uh, industry so that they could sell more goods to China. So here we're going to wind up having carbon not being uh, absorbed out of the uh, atmosphere. We're going to have more pollution. Um, the the amount of uh, uh, animals that will go extinct are going to be huge. And all of this because one person decided to put in a failed methodology to try and control economies. And it really does have a far-reaching effect. It certainly does, Lou. And, and I think that is additionally evidenced by with the 
uh, United Nations meetings that I think are kicking off today, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been no statements from the U.S. relative to climate change. However, even all of the large oil companies are making some form of commitment individually to um, contribute in some form, some obviously more significantly than others, but to try to help and address this issue relative to climate change in general. And certainly the issue with Brazil and the burning of the rainforest is is top of mind for anyone um, looking at anything relative to climate change. And I think it, it really goes back to, I think, Tim, where you started us off when you said every uh, government in history that has ever put a tariff in place has hurt themselves and not imp- not achieved the impact they were looking for. Exactly right. Uh, and I don't care who did it. Uh, I used to chat with some friends about something that's re-emerged called the chicken wars. And the chicken yeah. wars is when uh, the monks in California created champagne, a bubbling wine, a sparkling wine, and called it champagne. And France took great exception because it did not come from the region of Champagne, France, which is why it's called Champagne. And they put a tariff on our chickens going to France. And in retaliation, we put a tariff on their cognac coming to the United States. And that still exists today. And in fact, I think just recently, they were going to renew and upgrade the tariff on chickens. So <laughs> Those damn chickens. <laughs> it, it doesn't you know, work. It's a dumb idea. <laughs> it, it really is, unfortunately, kind of like kids playing in a sandbox, right? So you throw sand at me, I'll throw more sand at you. And where we get in the end is just a big mess. And so I'm really focused with, so how do we help our American businesses bear as little of the brunt of this or, or preserve themselves as much as we can so that, uh, Lou, to your point, they're not paying that 35% time and again, and if they can't get out of the 35%, then how do they mitigate that impact to their businesses and their yeah. margins? But it, matter of fact, the numbers, the numbers that I heard the first quarter of this year uh, was $60 billion that uh, we – quote unquote collected from China. Well, if you pro prorate that out, you're talking about a quarter of a trillion dollars that's really coming out of our economy and out of our pants pockets and has mm-hmm. nothing to do with China. Absolutely agreed. And these fellows and gals in Washington who helped Run, uh, run the company, country. Uh, we're just getting in deeper duck soup. We, uh, we were Lydia just got Lydia. Lydia let me ask you this because we've talked a great deal about supply chain as well. Is one of your recommendations that they your client companies look at their supply chain and move to another? Uh, offshore source or onshore source? So this is this is going to sound very cagey, Tim. However, I would say it totally depends on the company. And the reason I say that is it depends upon how much investment they currently have offshore versus onshore. 
right. what is the product that they are making to begin with, because depending upon the product itself, there's implications to bringing it onshore. Um, where would they be looking onshore relative to um, manufacturing opportunities? I do think for some companies, it makes very good sense. What they save in terms of transit on ocean time, what they save in terms of obviously the tariffs being the single largest, may be enough in some cases to offset the impact of starting manufacturing from scratch uh, onshore. However, there are other companies that have been very wise to divide their manufacturing and keep some manufacturing presence onshore stateside. And that's when I think they have the best opportunity to begin to, to move their volume production back stateside. So they're growing from something that already exists rather than starting um, green grass, if you will. That's when I see that it, that it can be the most difficult for them and in the end perhaps not be financially advantageous. Yeah, I would agree, uh, Lydia. I have just been reading where some companies have tens of millions of dollars invested in manufacturing operations in China. So it's not so easy to just say, okay, we'll take this widget and run to Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, the Philippines, India, and have it made there because those facilities weren't there in China the company in the U.S. invested to create them, and they don't exist in any of those other countries either, so they're going to have to reinvest again. So I, I agree with your point that not everybody can just up and move. Um, in, the no. process, in the process, Lydia, of this, do you also get into processes and policies in your client companies to say, well, here's another opportunity where you can – uh, save some money, clip some corners without impacting your product. Do you look into that as well? Absolutely. And, and Tim, that's actually a really significant part of what I work with clients on. It's it's not sexy stuff and it's not fun stuff, right? It's, it's just <laughs> hard work, slog through. Um, you don't make a lot of friends when you start going through cross-functional areas and laying out new policies or, or unearthing those old ones that are no longer supported, right? Um, however, you can find an awful lot of, I'd say, dollars rather than just quarters along the way. Many companies had policies that worked for them at one time, and as the regimes changed or as organizations changed, they didn't uphold those. And so some are no longer functional, don't make any sense. And others need to be created uh, to help really run the business and provide the guidance and the governance so that they are getting their best pricing to a, a variety of their customers, if you will. So, yeah, it's not fun, but it's, it's critically important because, to me, that's where there's the holes in the bucket, if you will. Makes a lot of sense. Um Lydia, you, there was an article uh, in the Atlanta Business uh, Journal uh, this summer about uh, your uh, philosophy about negotiation strategy pricing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? And by the way, I'd love to post it up on our site for you uh, next to this show when we do that. Uh, give me a little insight into what negotiation strategy pricing is about. 
so Lou, from my perspective, we're all born natural negotiators, but we forget, you know, as have you ever tried to negotiate with like a six year old child? You lose <laughs> every time, right? <laughs> so we, we suddenly forget as we grow into adulthood, how to do that. And so the, the negotiation strategy, really, I have set into three parts. And the first is define what it is that you want going into a negotiation. And whether that be a salesperson or whether that be uh, at, a, at a corporate contract level, um, whether that be uh, you're going to buy a car, what is it that you want at the end of the day and what in descending order are the things that are most important to you? What are your absolute must-haves? And then the second piece is try to forecast what you think the other side has as their must-have and what their number one want, if you will. So first you look at your position, and then you look at their position as best you can with the information you have available to you. And then starts what I call the dance, which is really how do you make trade-offs during the negotiation so that the other side feels like they're getting a win, they're getting something from you, you aren't giving away anything that you never intended to give away in the first place or are completely unwilling to give away. Um, and, and that is really the trick relative to, I'm sure many of the listeners have been to auctions. And what happens in the heat of that auction is people get caught up in the process, not in the end game, if you will. So it, it, it spirals out of control. And very often that's what happens with negotiations. People go in with an idea of what they're willing to give up, and in trying to, quote, win the negotiation, they end up either, quote, winning business that they really shouldn't be taken to begin with, they should have walked away from, um, or, or you walk away with a car and you think, I really paid far too much. I ended up with, you know, I got that, the, the seat covers and I got the nice little fancy drink holder and the floor mats, but why am I paying an extra $150 a month, let's say. Um, so it, it's not losing control of the pace in that third step of making those trade-offs. So that's really what the article is about. The new, apparently, the new normal in regards to negotiation is not to give in. Give up nothing. Take as much as you can. And give up nothing. That's the way they work. That's the way they negotiate on Capitol Hill. <laughs> and and I, I would say that's not so effective. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not talking politics. No, no, <laughs> talking, I'm not either. I'm talking methodology. Reality. I'm talking I, methodology. I would agree with, I would agree with you 100%. And I would say in the negotiation classes that I have taught over the years, um, I have not ever found scenarios where it is effective from a process perspective to just walk in and say, this is the ultimatum, unless, and, and that only unless is um, you have a monopoly and you hold all the cards, as the saying goes. Otherwise, the, the idea of going in with giving up absolutely nothing, I have never seen to be effective. 
<laughs> no, it certainly won't be. And, and, and in terms of giving things away, Lydia, one of the points you make is about governance. Can you expand on that a little bit for our listeners? Sure. So governance really just for me refers to what are the specified line item trade-offs that are, quote, allowed or sanctioned, if you will. So, for example, in a sales example, if a deal should be done at, at let's say, $100 a component, and the, the salesperson is, is authorized to sell it down to $90 a component, but someone receives an order where that salesperson signed off at $80, well, that trade-off where the salesperson has offered the customer $80 for that component would be outside of governance. That wouldn't, quote, be allowed um, because that's further down than what they were authorized to, to uh, release. So it, it's really about, and that's obviously a very simplistic example, but that holds true whether we're talking about a total corporate deal. So you have levels of authority, levels of signage throughout the process that says, okay, this vice president can sign off on a discount up to $50,000. The salesperson, it's it by parts of the deal or by components. Um, and what I would say to the listeners is be aware of what your total amount of discounts look like because so often we can be kind of um, very myopic in what we look at. We just look at the piece we're responsible for or just what's in front of us. And we don't pay any attention to the rest of it. So we're not looking at it holistically. And that's where we get into trouble because if, if the salesperson has offered $1,000 of discount and by the time it's made it to the senior vice president, they've offered 50000 and you start adding up every person that's had discount opportunity, we could end up discounting something to the point where when we look at the total profitability, we say, geez, we really didn't want that to begin with. So the trade-offs in that case weren't worth it. We won the business but we traded off profitability for it. So we really shouldn't have taken the business to begin with. That makes sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, 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 Lou would have to agree. Uh, I know he runs a, a company, All Metals and Forge Group, which is the sponsor of Manufacturing Talk Radio. And there's always a case where you're, you know, any, any salesperson can take business at 2%, but, you know, nobody wants it at 2%. <laughs> <laughs> or taking it at a loss. <laughs> and that's absolutely part of what governance does proactively. You do it ahead of time and say, what's the lowest that we are willing to go to take on a specific piece of business or a, a kind of piece of business so that you don't get into that in the moment when it's a heated discussion or, or when you are going through that process, you offer up things that you really wouldn't if you were thinking through it clearly and, and looking at your financials. Right. Well, we, there's an old story that we had uh, one of the salespeople uh, who was uh, from uh, Europe and um he he was putting together a rather large transaction. I think it was uh, Brazil, actually, at the time. And uh, it was several million dollars. And he came uh, to get approval on the pricing for that. And I looked at it, and uh, 
I saw that he was uh, making two, two and a half percent. And I, I said, I, I don't recall his name at the moment, but I said, you're losing money. You may, if there's the slightest mistake or a slightest error, or mm-hmm. if interest moves while the transaction is in play, you're going to lose money. You can't go in at 2%, 2.5%. And uh, he wound up leaving the company because he felt that he was entitled to me supporting him by uh, me paying the interest rate and so on and so forth, and then wind up having a net 2% profit margin, which I don't think anybody in their right mind would take an order like that. And that's the way people think sometimes. You know, they think uh, small thinking. Absolutely, Lou. And and your point about business conditions changing, interest rates changing, um, any, I think every business has to know what their absolute walkaway point is relative to margin and knowing what it takes for them to just keep the lights on and um, – not be accepting deals below that because it's um, to your point, it's a lose every time. And then you, you hold your breath and wait to see how bad you get hit with a loss. Yeah, I mean there is no glory in taking a big order that you lose money on. I mean, no one's going to write a book about that. Well, well they do. It's in bankruptcy <laughs> court that they write the book. <laughs> Right, they right. do make for some really interesting stories, though. <laughs> yes, they do. Lydia, uh, kind of to, to wrap us up, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners uh, in terms of the whole strategy that Capital Pricing Consultants, and by the way, that is CapitalPricingConsultants.com, brings to the table? Uh, what I'd like to share is, that really we provide an overview. So it's a total holistic overview of a company's profitability. We look at the cross-functional areas. We look at individual products. We look at customer segments. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.